Welcome to Santa Barbara Talks with Josh Molina. This is going to be a really fun conversation. It's my pleasure to be here today with Deborah Schwartz, who is a Santa Barbara mayoral candidate, and she's also a longtime member of the Santa Barbara Planning Commission. And anybody who knows anything about local uh, planning issues and politics is very familiar with, with Deborah. Deborah Schwartz, how are you doing today? Great. Thank you so much for having me in your podcast studio. Yeah, I'm really excited to get the, your invitation. Yeah, thank you. No, it's it's my pleasure. You know, and as you know, I've uh, I've covered you for a long time. Um, you know, as a journalist, and wrote about everything you've been involved with. You have a stellar resume, uh, so many credentials, and a record of experience in the city. So I think when people found out you're running for for mayor, there's a lot of buzz around your campaign. So let's let's talk about it right away. Uh, you are challenging, um, you know, an incumbent mayor. There's uh, two other candidates that I know of. Uh, you, you've been very successful and effective on the planning commission. Why are you choosing to run for mayor at this time? Well, Josh, you and I spoke, I think, a couple months ago now, and the issues are the same. In fact, mm -hmm. some of them are really growing. Um, we have a once-in-a-generation set of crossroad issues. Um, so... What I believe and what I'm hearing from the community is that we're in extraordinary times. And that means that ordinary track records and abilities um, just don't cut it. Uh, we need those with um, extraordinary uh, abilities and skills and temperament to lead us through and together to a better future. And um, so I think this is a unique year uh, and that's really why I'm doing it. Otherwise, if the city were run well and we were on our way through um, beyond the pandemic to uh, brighter days, I certainly wouldn't be spending 2021 doing this. And I'm sure my family would be relieved if I weren't doing this. But um, together, we're making the sacrifice um, from being so passionate about the city. Okay. You know, the issues of today are really the issues that we've been dealing with as a community for, for decades. Let's talk right away about housing. Okay. There's so much of a push for ways to increase the amount of housing available to people, particularly that missing middle. We have lots of affordable housing for capital A affordable, but there's a group of people in the middle who uh, can't afford to, to live here. And so they commute from outside of the area. The state has increasing mandates for, on Santa Barbara to build housing. And we're seeing it. We've seen it with the AUD program. Uh, now there's lots of talk about going higher downtown. What's your vision for housing in Santa Barbara? And how do we do more to provide for uh, people to be able to live and work here? Uh, well, it's, it's a struggle. It's a set of tensions that I don't think will ever go away. They haven't gone away in all these decades that uh, this has been a topic in the community. It's been an expensive community for all for a long time. Um, and I'll just say, for example, my family was a UCSB family. My father taught at UCSB for 42 years, and uh, it, was, it was tough throughout those years, um, a family of six, and even now more so. So um, to the balance that we need, because we're not going to build our way out of providing housing for absolutely everyone at um, less expensive or quote affordable, um, whether it's rent or for sale, we have to accelerate a few policies and practices 
to assist. Uh, I feel, and you, I've been outspoken about this, Josh, you've heard me on planning commission and elsewhere in public. Um, I don't think the city is stepping into the partnership role with the community. And I mean the private sector because over 90% of our rental housing has been built, will be built and will be owned and operated by the private sector, not the housing authority, not people self-help. So we have to decide that a partnership is the only way to get more housing. And then uh, we also need to talk about the city's permitting process. We, we can't be remiss in thinking that it's all going to come from outside City Hall. Yeah. So that's what I mean by a partnership. Um, the state's new requirements that came through, as you saw through SBKAG, the 8,001 units, I don't know that we're going to do it, quite frankly, because we're, we've fallen terribly behind and even meeting our current numbers. I don't think it's so much the numbers. Let me cut to the chase kind of for the average person who asks me about this. Sure. The numbers are just a means of evaluating. It's like holding ourselves accountable to our intentions and our actions. And I don't think that our intentions and our actions line up with making the best good faith effort um, to, to move policy and to actually get more rental housing, especially rental housing built for the missing middle. Although we also need more moderately priced for sale like condominiums for missing middle who want to start investing in a long-term asset for themselves. So we need both. And I think, um, I think some really hard, tough conversations need to happen to ask ourselves if we're willing to support um, true mix of incomes and demographics here in Santa Barbara. What about housing downtown? How high should we go? What is the right formula mix for, for housing downtown? Um, sep let me separate out what the state would like us to do and what state legislation is may, may in fact force us to do. Um, I think that in some areas, in some blocks, on some sides of the street, we can and we should go a little higher. This is not gonna be a high rise community. It's not our aesthetic. Um, it's not what fits in Santa Barbara and it's not acceptable to Santa Barbara. We're not LA, we're not San Francisco. So the question is, where does that fit in? And I know that the, the new council initiated downtown master plan process, I'm sure yeah. we'll look at that, we'll address that. Um, we have opportunities now for what's called adaptive reuse or changing out older buildings that actually are quote very dense is a lot that you can put inside the box without going up multiple stories um there are obstacles to that which we can talk about you know another time either today or another time so i kind of feel like the almost the obsession we have in talking about height is a distraction for us in not looking at the current built environment to say what about one more story? And then relaxing some of our regulations or changing as we are about to do, how we look at the number of housing units you can fit inside a development envelope or a box and say, let's go in that direction because we get away from the tensions, the community tensions around height, which I have always been sensitive because we're such a 
beautiful city, physically beautiful city, and we certainly don't want to sacrifice that beauty uh, while at the same time we're looking to get more housing built for, for those who, who live here and, well, who work here, don't all live here, as you said, yeah. often, you know, some of them, 30,000, I guess, commute in through Santa Barbara every day. So. What do you think of the state of Santa Barbara? You know, I grew up in um, Goleta, Santa Barbara. My parents were renters, so we lived east side, west side, old town, all over the south coast growing up. So I have sort of a connection to, like, the whole area. And so Santa Barbara to me has, has um, rapidly changed, obviously, you know, in the pandemic, of course, state street has dramatically changed uh, closed cars to traffic. We're seeing, um, you know, restaurants out um, in the public right away. We're seeing bicycles. We're seeing pedestrians. Uh, people are, there's more vibrancy downtown. Um, it looks kind of messy, you know, it doesn't look like anything you would set out to design, but, but the public works department and the, um, you know, the um, various city departments are okay with it because it's under the guise of, well, we have to act fast, you know, and obviously they bypass some of the, some of the normal reviews there. So there's that change that's happening. Uh, but we also have sort of this feels like this time we're having this generational turnover a little bit so a lot of the people who were such big advocates for preserving Santa Barbara you know certainly its skyline its historic buildings its charm its character it seems as though and I want to get your opinion on this there's fewer of those people and there's more of the sort of millennial tech types who who kind of want to make Santa Barbara a little bit like San Francisco or, you know, some of these bigger areas, Seattle, and say, you know, why don't we have more housing? Why don't we have more of everything those cities do? Because Santa Barbara needs more of it because you know, we're here. And I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, do you feel like this is sort of a, like, we just got to let it go and let Santa Barbara change? Or do we need to retrench and say, no, we need to keep this community special the way we have the past you know, 30 years? Well, I wouldn't call it letting it go. <laughs> I don't think that's the right, I don't think that's the right uh, direction, you know, the right vibe. Uh, I, I don't think that most people want to let any, everything go, but so balance is the right word. And so I think that uh, cultural diversity, um, reverence for respect for, maybe renewed respect for the natural environment, and we just came out of Earth Day and a lot, there were a lot of forums pertaining to that. I think that our younger generation is more attuned to that and more passionate about protecting the natural environment. And that takes, you know, many, many forms. Um, there are amenities, there are um, opportunities in big cities for younger generations that I think in smaller versions are really important for the vibrancy of Santa Barbara. And for Santa Barbara to be a city across demographics, across types of people, not just age, but culturally, racially, culturally, um, I think we need to look to a different future, not a radically different one, but a more diverse one in every single way. So that's the built, what I call the built environment. You know, that's 
who we're providing, providing housing for, how we're providing that housing. And uh, at the same time, bringing in the younger generations to help inform us of their values, their interests, their desires to stay here, have families here. I just uh, had a coffee, this fabulous cafe on State Street, Cage Cafe, across from the Arlington, yeah. the former Petros. And I just happened to be sitting next to a young man, he probably is around 30, and I got to chatting with him and he um, lives in Santa, lives in the city of Santa Barbara, works in Goleta at one of these tech firms um, and would love to stay here, would love to move out of being with roommates, you know, and have his own place, stay, start a family at some time. That, that's who we, we need to welcome into Santa Barbara and to hear what the future for them looks like in Santa Barbara. So we need to do everything. There's the older generation that helped establish Santa Barbara, built Santa Barbara, invested in Santa Barbara. They are very important, speaking of downtown. Uh, and, and then it's all the way down to the younger generations who are going to be here long after we are. Um, so uh, that's why my campaign is a whole city campaign. Uh, and it's important as we are doing that we connect with uh, and hear from a wide variety of community voters, community constituents. Um, I think that's, that's the only way forward. So we have to be engaged. We have to respectfully listen, actively listen, and take some action that allows us to adjust if it's not the right policy. We can talk more about that but not be afraid to move forward in areas, in ways that are really important because we can't stand still and we're not going back. There's no way. Yeah. So I've heard a couple of things out there as a reporter uh, sort of about your mayoral candidacy. So I was sort of address, get you to address it. Um, oh, she's the developer's candidate, right? Um, you know, she's somebody who is gonna try to uh, appeal to the developers the business community. Um, she's somebody who is, is definitely going to try to uh, use her planning connections to sort of build a campaign upon, you know, everybody's got to define their certain space, right? Like who is my base? Um, I mean, are you the developer's candidate? Are you the candidate of business people in, in, in this contest? Uh, can you just sort of talk about like who, you know, who is your base and who are you most trying to appeal to? Um, well, small businesses, local businesses are the lifeblood of our community. So um, it's interesting to me that the employers pay property tax, sales tax, some of them bed tax, transient occupancy tax. Um, all of those are business people. Um, some of them are developers, whether it's commercial or residential, but all of them are employers. And so it concerns me to hear um, sort of a generalization and, and almost a stigma attached to what really amount to being the employers of Santa Barbara. Um, now, when it comes to housing development, as you've just heard, I think a balance is key. You know, accessory dwelling units, multi-unit housing or you know, apartment, we used to call them apartment complexes. Um, 
all of that is critical. Those partnerships are critical to building more rental and for sale housing across the economic spectrum or income spectrum. Um, my background is business. I understand business. I understand the importance of the relationship, the, we'll call it public-private, between government and business. Um, and unfortunately, I think that the gap has been growing in respect between local government and employers or business, specifically housing. And uh, my concern there, and so the conversations I'm having with the business community is, how do we bridge the gap between what sometimes sounds like a vilification, like vilifying the business community, especially housing development business community, when again, they, they are the way forward for us to get more housing. So I appreciate what they're doing. Uh, I appreciate the investment they're making in the community. Um, not everybody wants to make an investment here. By the way, Josh, I, I also have had meetings with um, investor business, business people who are at a point of frustration that if they aren't welcomed in, they're going to take their housing investment interest elsewhere. We can't afford that. So um, I think what's most important, whether we're talking about the employer community or others in the community, and again, because the mayor's seat is a citywide seat, it's a citywide election, everybody in every district matters. It's not just the business community, it's everyone. So when it comes to public comment, when it comes to having an open door policy, when it comes to returning emails and voicemails, everybody should be equal in the eyes of the mayor, which means nobody gets favored treatment, but everybody gets access to the mayor and to be actively and respectfully listened to by the mayor. And that is not happening. We could talk about that eventually, if you like. So I am not any one constituency's candidate. I'm the whole city candidate because that's what's important. And that's what's, um, that's what, that's my passion. Um, I simply resonate with the business community in some ways because I do have a business background before I returned to Santa Barbara in 2005. And I understand that economics 101 require employers to be here for us to be a vibrant, sustainable, balanced, you know, community. Yeah. Um, so perhaps that's why there's a, a misconception that I'm one type of candidate or another. Let's go to two directions. Um, I want to get to your criticisms or your commentary on, on the current mayor seat, but let's talk about the planning department. And you reference sort of this idea that there's a little bit of a stigma or skepticism of developers. Uh, can you talk about why that is? I mean, I hear stories of you know, ADU applications, you know, not being denied, but being deemed incomplete, and they just sort of stack up, and, and, and the city never really is doing its best to work to get approval, and if you're a, a homeowner, and you're trying to add something, you're a small person, not a developer, uh, it's cost a lot of money, and then you end up never being able to do it, and then, you know, the city sort of having this sort of, like, 
hostility toward developers who come in and have these big projects. Why is that? Can you explain, you know, you have a very unique role. You're on the planning commission, land use and planning is your specialty. You know, the players in the community development department. Why, why is there this perception of community development against the world when it comes to housing? Well, that's a central question. Uh, and I'm probably asked that almost every day, especially now running for mayor. And by the way, the people who are asking me it are, are they're, they're longtime multi-generation people who have tried to do something simple to their older single family home um, in a neighborhood that's not a posh neighborhood, shall we say, all the way up to those um, looking to spend millions of dollars investing in let's say multi-unit housing. You know, where did it all begin? What's the crux of the matter? That's the multi-million dollar question, right? Um, all I can address is where we are now. I think that's the most practical or pragmatic thing to do. In other words, what, what, what is the situation now? What is the organizational culture? Uh, what is the community experiencing as they interact with planning and building and safety? And what are we going to do about it to strike the right balance between having appropriate policies and practices in place uh, and, and then also sending the community a message that they're welcomed in, we respect them, um, we want to work cooperatively with the community on their needs that pertain to planning and building and safety. I don't know what's, what's going to be needed in terms of an, a culture change. I do believe culture is part of this. It's not just policy. It's, it, it goes beyond that. Um, right when somebody comes up to the counter in 630 Garden, when we get back to a, a time when people will walk in and go right up to the counter. So there has to be an or a culture of customer service. And as I've said to you before, the community is the customer. So if we don't find our way back to, and I think in the 80s, we, this existed because I heard from a recent longtime multi-unit housing developer who I sat down with, his first project back in the 80s, he told me, took, hold on to your hat here, Josh, eight months start to finish. Oh. Well, that would just shock anybody to hear these days. Yeah. So how is it? What's changed? It's certainly not just California building code. Yeah. It's, it's not like the state did it to us, right, right, in that regard. So we, I think we need to really do a deep dive and look in the mirror and ask ourselves, what, what has changed for us? What are we doing differently? <laughs> and what are we willing to do to turn this around? So is, is, it, is it direction from council and the mayor? Possibly. Uh, is, is it having a retreat to, to ask ourselves, um, what are we going to do to turn around the general fund that is our, our basic checking account revenue where we're hemorrhaging due to the pandemic and we're kind of in economic free fall. We don't really know how we're gonna come out of this and restore all of that funding, quite frankly. Uh, but I think some very sobering conversations need to happen around all this. And um, 
I, I think it's a combination of a of a political will, I'll call it that, from the council and mayor. Uh, and by political will, I mean together deciding, that is the seven of them deciding, or at least five of the seven, deciding that change is required imminently, not in three years, but on a fast track timeline and then directing through the city administrator that those changes uh, be implemented um, or there will be consequences if they're not. And I, I've managed many employees um, and you know that first of all, if an employee isn't clear about their job description and the deliverables and there are no consequences truly, then we're not going to see change. So it'll be status quo for the foreseeable future. So I think all of that's in play and the mayor plays a central role because the mayor either passively or proactively sets the agenda for every Tuesday with the city administrator, as you know. Right. All right. So let's shift now. Let's talk about the politics of the city council. And I've been covering the city council uh, more or less for 20 years with the exception of a little bit of gap when I was in San Jose. Um, in some ways is the worst council I've ever covered. Um, and and I, I mean that not as individuals, but in terms of the effectiveness of, of the board in terms of getting things done. Now, I know that with the pandemic, everything is much more difficult. So we give them a break there. But there's an element of theater in the council chamber, um, you know, and virtually that is frustrating. Frustrating, I think, if you're just an observer and frustrating if you're a journalist who's trying to write stories about what's really happening here. And, uh, you know, with district elections, you know, we sort of have people who are pretty safe, right? Their jobs are pretty safe for a long time. Um, you know, we've, you know, some people don't face a challenge, you know, on the ballot. There's literally you know, in a couple of the contests, nobody's running against them, uh, you know, in the past and again. And so, you know, I think when people are really comfortable, they tend not to work as hard as they should. And then, you know, you've got the mayor, Kathy Maria, who's, who's very nice. She's very kind. Uh, she's very positive, you know, uh, but she's counting votes in there. You know, she's sort of looking at like, can we get to four? That's her sort of focus. She, she said that out loud during the meetings. And there's a feeling of, we're trying to get things done from a certain person's agenda. Like, well, if we've have four, why do we need to keep talking? Essentially, that's been sort of the conversation at times. So it can be frustrating because when you don't have a whole lot of leadership, and I wasn't around when Harriet Miller was mayor, but I hear, that, oh, Harriet did this, and Harriet would never let this happen. So, you know, there was that. And, uh, you know, Helene Schneider was, was you know, in my opinion, very good mayor. The last couple of years, things went a little haywire with her, but she was very, she's very leader-like and she did a good job. And, you know, Marty, Marty Bloom had, had her issues, um, you know, two <laughs> controversies. But um, there's just something about this council that feels very theatrical. And I'm just sort of wondering if you could, you could weigh in and give me your thoughts on, like, what is the problem with the council? Why, 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 why does it, why do they take forever to do things? And, and, you know, what's the deal with their organization and, and, and leadership? Can you talk about that? Uh, well, I do believe that district elections 
have played a part mm -hmm. in this, as you've already pointed out. I agree with you. So that requires even more so a mayor who can, if I say unify, it's not going to be that everybody votes the same. It's that the mayor now is the only at-large elected public official needs to, first of all, forge respectful relationships with re deep rapport with each one of the six so that from Tuesday to Tuesday, item to item needs to be decided on. She can uh, go across, kind of go across the aisle and understand how to bring along colleagues through personality, through personal values, through politics, over to a consensus, kind of in the moment negotiated consensus on policies and projects that are important for the community. Uh, it's an art, not a science. I'll tell you that much being now, this is my second year in a row as chair of the planning commission and during the pandemic. It's taken so much more from me to prepare, um, to be in the moment with staff and actively listening to the public and with my colleagues to try to help us forge consensus through our differences to some majority vote you know, that makes sense. Um, with the, the current council, and I know, know all of them to varying degrees, I, I think that more so than in very recent years, and maybe this is what you're getting at, I think that politics has um, sort of infected, made its way into the body politic. And we don't entirely leave politics at the door. I mean, elected officials, public officials, it happens. My question, the issue that I'm always looking at is to what degree? That's, that's the real question. To what degree do we allow politics to make its way into policy making? Yeah. And I think we're at a point, for me, my own watching of council, where it's not as productive Council's not as productive as they could be, but I want to put that on the mayor. Uh, yes, each of the six uh, can can do their own parts individually, you know, respectively. But the mayor has to be the one to understand and to have those relationships to to bring them out, bring each one of the six out of division including behaviorally, let's just talk honestly here. Sometimes we're not always our best selves. We don't always behave the best the way we should. So sometimes it takes someone else to step in and remind us very gently and professionally and respectfully, let's step back, let's tamp this down. Let's take a breather, let's take a pause because let's remind ourselves that we're the people's representatives and we're here to serve the people, not ourselves, not a special interest group. The only person who can really do that week in and week out is the mayor. And I think that the community has seen enough of a well-intentioned current mayor, but one who doesn't either have the skill set to do it 
or the motivation to do it. And I'll leave that up to the voters as to what they, you know, they make of that. But that's the other reason I'm running. And, and I think that's, uh, that's a pressing need for this council uh, to be even more effective. Okay, let's take a step back now and sort of talk about you, the person. Um, I've heard you say during the campaign that you are, um, you know, the only candidate from Santa Barbara, who was raised in Santa Barbara, grew up in Santa Barbara. And, um, you know, that's, that's a, I think something that gets lost, you know, you know, obviously, a, a lot of candidates will, will, will use that and say that prominently. And um, it hasn't really come up in the mayor's race that, you know, this is somebody who grew up here. Your, your mother, Naomi Schwartz, is sort of royalty, political royalty, very well respected. And uh, she obviously was known as an incredible environmentalist, member of the Board of Supervisors. Um, so can we talk about what it was like for you growing up and, uh, you know, having a mother who was so involved and, and active and little bit about how you defined your own sort of um, identity and space um, mm -hmm. growing up like that. Mm -hmm. That's a really interesting question, Josh, because, I mean, as anybody knows who has um, a public figure as a parent or a prominent parent, um, it takes a number of years to find oneself separate from the identity or the profile or the legacy of a parent. Um, and, and I feel so fortunate, truly, she was an amazing mother. Let me just start there. Couldn't have asked for um, a more, a warmer, caring, mentoring mother. And then separate from that, of course, in her community service role. Yeah. And community was everything to my mother. Uh, she had an opportunity. I don't know if I ever told you this, Josh, so little piece of new news. Okay. She had an opportunity to go work um, in Washington. She was invited to be in an administration. And that would have been a very glamorous and kind of high-flying opportunity for her. She refused to leave Santa Barbara. And this is when she was on the Board of Supervisors. You know, she was first district supervisor for 12 years. And her young upstart chief of staff was Salute Carbajal, as everybody knows now. Okay. But I say this because in moving back to Santa Barbara after my business career in San Francisco, and again, I came back in 2005, and I'm so fortunate that I had those final years with her. You know, she passed in 2012. We had so many hours of deep conversation about what it means to really be a community servant, a public servant, day in and day out, caring about the little and the big, it, you know, as they say, it's like the potholes and then, you know, everything else. Because if one doesn't care about the everyday issues, interests, concerns, needs of every member of a community, it's not the job for then the person running for office or seeking appointment, you know, whatever it is. And I think that's a foundation that's part of my DNA and that I've increasingly through the years become more and more passionate about. So probably because people know how to reach me either by phone or email, I receive sometimes the most surprising calls or emails, uh, even though I'm not an elected at this time. 
asking me to be involved because I think um, they know how much I care and that regardless of whether it seems like a small issue, a minor issue, a minor issue to an elected official is can be a major issue to that resident, that business owner. And so I try my best even now, you know, as an appointed public official planning commission to step into everything that the community wants me to, um, that's appropriate to. So in her shadow, I don't see it as a shadow. Uh, it's, it's been um, wonderful mentoring and coaching. However, let me also say that every generation is different, including a parent being different than a child. So there is no duplication of Naomi Schwartz. Uh, it's just not, nobody can duplicate themselves. And so she was um, of a time and of a generation, which is the 50s. And she went from being an elementary school teacher to being an environmental activist because of the 69 oil spill. What if the oil spill had never happened? We don't know what the life of Naomi Schwartz would have been. Yeah. And then she met this wonderful young man, educator Gary Hart. You remember Gary? So it's all these pieces of life that are unanticipated that ultimately make for how people step into who they ultimately become. I'm just so honored. And um, I don't know if this sounds a bit corny, but uh, I think she's still advising me very quietly from, from up there. Um, and I certainly um, look to all those conversations we had over the years to try to guide me. I mean, I have a number of mentors, but she's certainly up, up there at the top. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I, I want to talk about your social media campaign too, because um, I noticed you've been, you got on Instagram recently and you're posting a lot and you're active and it feeds into a larger narrative of covering your campaign. So um, I just, I noticed that you are, you are working very hard to sort of reach um, a social media audience. And that's something that is different in, in Santa Barbara politics. We don't, we haven't found that candidate who's, you know, done the Barack Obama thing and has been able to sort of, you know, get all this support through this effective social media campaign. You know, Angel Martinez ran for mayor a few years ago and spent a ton of money. And I don't know how many doors he knocked on, but, you know, it didn't pay off, even though he was spending a lot in these other sort of, you know, Facebook ads and virtual social media can you talk a little bit about sort of, you know, without talking your entire campaign strategy here, but what is your plan to reach people who aren't necessarily already familiar with your, your body of work? Uh, this job is one where some candidates just try to do everything they can to get Democrats to vote. And if they count the numbers and the percentages and they get Democrats to vote, they win. So they repeat, repeat, repeat. They go to their doors. They call. Have you filled out your ballot? Please vote because they know the numbers are on their side. And if they happen to be endorsed by the Democratic Party, more often than not, that's an effective way to win. Um, in your case, you know, you're, you're trying to, you already said it, you know, it's everybody, right? You're trying to appeal to everybody. So can you talk a little bit about how you break out from that box that's really appealing to the business community and the developers who know you 
and try to reach those other people out there who are just going to cast a ballot for the mayor's seat. And they don't really know all that history and background, but they want a better Santa Barbara. How, what are you doing and how are you going to reach them? So our early strategy, and I want to tell you a little bit about the exciting campaign team yeah. that, that I've been building, uh, which is very unique here. First of all, we started social media early um, in large part because of the pandemic and we cannot congregate in groups as sort of typical politicking would, would require or has, has been traditionally. Um, so we needed to reach diverse, broad constituencies early. And the way to do that in modern times is through social media, which has just exploded with who's on social media, which platforms, and how they're using the platforms. So I started Instagram early. I can't remember if it was uh, December or January. Uh, relaunched Facebook and then connected the two. Um, and I have to just admit that my generation, I'm just going to say my generation, isn't the cutting edge generation for social media. Therefore, um, I've had and have now expanded my campaign team. Um, they're all young. They're hip. They uh, have incredible work ethic, incredible dedication to our campaign and my candidacy. And they're very social media savvy. And most recently, I also added uh, our, a bilingual community outreach coordinator. So now we are also connecting with the Spanish language or bilingual community here. And that's an important part of that whole city campaign. Um, as you can probably tell in looking at both Instagram and Facebook postings, it's a combination of, I talked about employers, connecting with employers throughout the city. And we're doing this kind of slowly on a, on a timeline of reaching every district or every neighborhood started with the funk zone, moved over to Milpas. Um, and, and now I'm also working through the districts, highlighting the districts, my relationships with the districts, my love of certain um, kind of fun local hotspots in those districts um, and the amenities in the district districts. So it's all of that to showcase what our entire city really is and who makes up this whole city. Now in doing that strategically, you mentioned you know the Barack Obama way uh, or that breakthrough, um, it's been phenomenal how many new organizations and these are neighborhood organizations, business organizations, member organizations, uh, businesses have just started following me on Instagram. And, and so they become, for those who didn't know me, know more about me, and that there is an election this year. We didn't even start with that, right? right. Uh, because it's still, it's going to be a long year. And some don't even know that there's an election either for the mayor or three council seats. So it's, it's requiring all of that. And again, I'm really pleased that the kind of campaign team I'm building, it's lean. You mentioned about, you know, Angel Martinez in 2017. We're only spending what we really need to to run a lean, efficient, smart, uh, but but distributed kind of out there as safely as we can be once we can go back to congregating if the governor reopens the state June 15th. Um, 
I'll then have, you know, an in-person fundraiser and we'll have more of those events. So we just have to watch what's going on with the pandemic. Josh, I don't want to, um, you know, assume too much about when we can be together. Uh, so this is the strategy that's important for now. You know, I've said this on, on Jerry Roberts show and, and I've said it to other people. So I'm going to say it to you and then we'll just address it. Um, I'll use the B word. You're brilliant when it comes to land use and planning and anyone who watches the planning commission meetings knows that you are um, super knowledgeable. You're, you're the smartest person in the room. Like it's undeniable. Okay. Um, you're totally qualified to be the mayor of Santa Barbara, right? That's not an issue, but this is not a job, right? This is politics. <laughs> and so much about politics has to do with likability and engagement and connection with um, just people who vote, just like people who are going to decide who they're going to vote for based off of the mail they get. Okay. Uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about, you know, you've got some candidates in this race. You've got Kathy Murillo, who's an incumbent, who's endorsed by the party, who comes across very well in person. You meet her, she shakes your hand, she hugs you. She's so animated and positive. Okay. Uh, she makes a really good first impression. You've got Randy Rouse, who's been around for a long time, business owner, connected to the community um, in terms of just a lot of connections over the years. And then you got James Joyce, who's connected to Hannah Beth Jackson and a whole other constituency there. He's got his own business that he's building and uh, he's, you know, uh, you know, the youngest of all the candidates. So there's, there's a lot of uh, people in this contest who are going to be trying to appeal to the very few people who are going to be voting. So I just want to ask you about that. Like, I mean, at the end of the day, this is not a job about who's the most qualified person to be mayor. This is a job. This is the person who's elected is going to be the person who um, resonates most with those people who vote. So it's a very small percentage. Can you talk a little bit about how you try to be more engaging and likable and come across as less of the wonky, smart person in the room and more of just, yeah, I want to have a cup of coffee with her and, and chat Santa Barbara. Well, I'm going to challenge you a little bit and say <laughs> that I think it's, I think it's all of the above this year. I really think it's a different year uh, because of what we've all experienced during the pandemic and really even leading up to the pandemic. Santa Barbara had issues, key challenges, um, but the pandemic blew it right wide open. And I think it has affected everyone in the community in one in our city in one way or another. Um, yes, because of um, my background, planning commission, being on camera, um, certainly my professional demeanor, I think, has not allowed me necessarily to show all of who I am, uh, as you've said, you know, which is why getting out in the community and meeting with people individually, which I've now been able to begin to do safely, is so important. Um, what I'm hearing, Josh, is that in these really difficult times, I said a once in a generation crossroads, I'm hearing from people across the city, all walks of life. They want someone who's all of that. They want someone who understands city business, who understands how to change the way the city operates, wants the city to function better for them. And yes, can go have a cup of coffee or some, some other beverage, whatever their choice is. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, and, and so I'm doing that and I'll be doing more of that as we can safely, you know, be out in public. Um, I think it's a matter of people knowing me personally. Uh, you're right. When you're an incumbent, you have many opportunities to get out into the community and um, the incumbent mayor does have a different personality than I do. Um, and we have very different skill sets. And I think people are understanding as they watch me on planning commission, especially as chair and meet me in person, that a different kind of mayor is what's required. And it's not just about being friendly um, and wanting to have a cup of coffee or enjoying that. It's that plus yeah. and to, you know, plus plus. And so um, I, it's going well. And again, it's going to be a long year um, and we will be out in the community in big numbers when it's safe to do that. Um, mm. So I'm, I'm confident. My team is confident that that we'll we'll be doing that. Um, and so it's looking very good in that way. OK. And what are you hearing um, just sort of on the campaign trail in terms of uh you know, are, are you, what kind of pushback are you getting? You know, I've heard from people that, no, there won't be four candidates who stay in this race. You know, there's just not enough. Um, are you, are you getting uh, any sort of pushback from people who are saying, oh, Kathy's just going to get reelected, Deborah, if you stay in the race, I'm sure Randy's getting it. And I'm sure James is getting it. That, that becomes this sort of thing of if too many people who are not like Kathy run, they're going to split the vote and Kathy's going to get reelected. Um, are you hearing any of that talk, any of that strategy? And how do you respond um, if so? Uh, well, it's well known in the field of politics and running for office that uh, too many candidates does create the slimmest of margins um, for, for an, uh, an outcome, which is what we saw in 2017 with yeah. the mayor's race. Uh, and in our city, and some have even asked me recently, you didn't ask me about this, but let me say that some are, have recommended to me uh, that should I prevail, that we look at a different election system where it's either 50% plus one or a runoff, because to have the only citywide seat, the mayor's seat, win at the small percentage, 28 whether, whether Kathy wants to say 29% or it's 28 or 27, it doesn't matter. Right. It, it's only in the high 20s. That's what we're talking about is the, what happened in 2017. So it's not a mandate. It, it's not a significant message from the voters as to who their mayor is. So um, we, we can't have a crowded field. I think it's not good for the community, but we do live in a democracy. So it's the prerogative of anyone to get in. And... I'm not concerned. It doesn't mean I don't work hard. I work hard every day as a candidate right now, and I will all the way through November 2nd. Um, I'm hearing that there likely will be at least one candidate who probably drops out. Um, it's hard to sustain these kinds of campaigns financially if one isn't very diligent in fundraising. Uh, it's not necessarily fun to do it. Uh, it's just a requirement. Yeah. And, um, and I think it, it shows up pretty quickly with those candidates who either don't have the skill or the motivation to do it or just can't uh, cultivate the financial support. Um, so that's what I do seven days a week 
along with everything else. And I think there will be at least one candidate who can't bring that about. Will they stay in it just for other reasons? Candidates do that also, Josh. It's, all, it's not always about the win, the immediate win in politics. Sometimes it's just um, building, building a brand for another purpose, mm-hmm. another different purpose. So we'll see. But here's the important thing in running, in, in campaigning, is to not get distracted. There are a million and one distractions in being a candidate. And so we take new information into account, calculate it, what does that mean for my candidacy and our strategy, and then we continue to move forward and stay focused. And that's what's really important. So um, so we'll see. I'm not the predictor of what will happen with the other three, or let's just say the other two challengers. Yeah. Um, but it's going to be a long year in a lot of ways. Um, but but we're in it to win it, as they say. I'm in it to win it. And um, again, I couldn't be more pleased with the team that we're building to, to support that. Okay. Well, great. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned um, some people building a brand, you know, you know, anyone who pays attention to this knows who you're referring to there. You know, there's a lot of reasons why people run, you know, it's, it's publicity, it's attention. So uh, for some, for some people, I want to sort of wrap up here, kind of give you the last word, um, allow you the opportunity to sort of just um, talk to people about your candidacy and, you know, why they should, should vote for you. Obviously we're, we're still kind of early. People are going to hear a lot more about this come September after Labor Day and becomes more of the focal point of the city. Uh, But I do, I do want to say that, you know, for anyone who's um, wanting the candidate of substance on the planning issues they need to watch a planning commission meeting because they're going to be in awe and i've said this to you before as a reporter i mean i don't obviously i don't care who's up there i'm just trying to write the story and so what do i need somebody who can explain it somebody who can analyze it and just explain it in a way that makes sense and you do a really good job of that as opposed to the politicking you know it's like what are they really trying to say i got to decipher it it becomes more work and so you have that expertise in the planning issues that I think is really helpful and essential to anyone who watches those meetings. Um, I just want to give you the last word, you know, so what do you want to say to people who are trying to make up their minds on who this Deborah Schwartz person is? Well, I want to thank you again, Josh, for ha- having me on your podcast show. And I would say that, you know, it's important when I look at whether it's a an appointee planning commission role or an elected role. And what I hear from the community that's I think resonating with our campaign, it's not just doing one's homework, as they say, it's not just being knowledgeable about the projects or the policies that are coming forward, although that's very important. It is about the relationships forged with a majority of your colleagues who we don't pick, either the voters pick them or somebody else picks them. And then it's, and then it's with full transparency, explaining to the voters why we vote the way we do. I think it's so important and I've really devoted myself to this on planning commission. In the end, the community deserves to understand why I vote the way I do with some public servants, they could be appointees or electeds. It's not clear 
where they started and what they were discussing or commenting on or voicing opinions on, and then how they turned out voting seemingly in a very different direction. And I think that the transparency and consistency I'm talking about conveys to the voters that I am committed to expressing to them who I am and why I'm making decisions the way I do so that they can both understand me and trust my votes. Trusting the vote is as important as exactly how we vote. And I think the community is yearning for that type of trust and confidence, which quite frankly has eroded. It's diminished. And the community wants that, needs that now. Um, and I think that's only going to happen with the change in the mayor's seat. All right. Okay, Deborah Schwartz. Well, thank you. I really appreciate your time. It's always and, great uh, to talk to you, Josh. I wish we had even more time together. Maybe we will in the months to come. So yes, thank you. And I always always look forward to writing um or you know, watching on the planning commission. I look forward to covering you in the campaign. Okay. So, um 